You are listening to Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Welcome to Ukraine 242, a weekly show interviewing experts and key people on the ground to explore the events and meaning of the war in Ukraine. I'm Ursula Rudenberg, standing in temporarily for your regular host, Anne Levine. The bitter fighting in the Donbass region in Ukraine continues. Last week, Mr. Prigozhin, owner of the private mercenary Wagner Group, posted a gruesome video standing in a field of dead soldiers where the Wagner Group is spearheading the fight for control of the city of Bakhmut in the Donbass, a city that by all accounts has been essentially leveled. I spoke with Oksana Shevel, assistant professor of political science at Tufts University, to learn about the story of the Donbass and why it is of such strategic importance. Oksana Chevelle is an associate professor of political science at Tufts University and at the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University. Like other Ukrainian scholars, Chevelle identifies the origins of the war to 2014 when the popular Ukrainian uprising known as the Maidan Revolution sparked the conflict with Russia. Professor Chevelle, can you describe the Donbass region and why focus so much on this area? Yes, Donbass was where we can say Russia-friendly attitudes have been stronger. Ukraine has often been described as a divided country. It goes back to complicated history. People had overlapping identities. They could simultaneously think of themselves as Ukrainian and Russian. Distinctions were not really clear-cut. So it is true that Donbass has variation in attitudes and divisions toward the Russians. But when Euromaidan took place in Ukraine in the winter of 2013-2014, for many Ukrainians, it was perceived as a turning point. Euromaidan were the demonstrations? Yes, demonstrations against the decision of then-Ukrainian President Yanukovych, who decided against signing a free trade agreement with the European Union. Which would have been a movement towards Europe, right? Exactly. Even though it was a trade agreement, it wasn't like membership in the European Union, it had nothing to do with NATO, but it was perceived as this kind of geopolitical turning point. Yanukovych was pressured by Putin to abandon signing this agreement with the European Union. So it led to the protests that be known as the Euromaidan that started in Kyiv and ultimately in many regional centers, including in Donbass. That actually was not the first time there was a popular uprising in the capital. 2004 was a previous case when Yanukovych tried to become president through stolen elections and protesters in this mass movement known as the Orange Revolution ended up bringing to power pro-Western president Viktor Yushchenko. When that happened at the time, there was opposition to this in the south and the east that didn't really go anywhere. Ukrainians had this history of negotiating these regional differences and kind of coming to some sort of an agreement and some from the south and the east received positions in the central government in the capital and Russia did not interfere. I would say that in 2014 we would have had the same situations but when Euromaidan took place in Ukraine Russia interfered. The annexation of Crimea created this precedent that Russia can come and take over territory and then in 2014 various operatives came from Russia in Donbass started coordinating the takeover of government buildings which essentially led to armed fighting between central government and these various pro-Russian and Russian operatives and groups in Donbass through the summer of 2014 and the creation in Donbass of the so-called Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. 
and the way Putin interpreted it was that this region should be given veto power over the decisions of Ukraine's central government. In my view, that was basically a plan to have Russian control and prevention of westward movement of Ukraine through having the special status for these regions. So even though Putin claims that it was liberation of Russian speakers, that's complete propaganda. I don't think Putin really cares about Donbass region. is kind of depressed industrial region. It was a Trojan horse. So Putin essentially tried to have influence over Ukraine. It's right to determine its own foreign policies, using Donbass essentially as a pawn to basically put pressure on the central Ukrainian pro-Western government that came to power in 2014. And when that failed, because Ukraine refused to implement the terms Russia favored, and once the failure became apparent, we ended up with a full-scale invasion. Okay. (laughs) If it's okay with you, I'm going to back up for many of us who are not so familiar with how this actually happened. As I understand that when the Euromaidan protests that you talked about culminated in 2014, that Yanukovych, the president at the time, he fled, right? And then the government was changed. Yes, the constitution did not have a provision of what to do if the president just flees, just disappears. There was no procedure in the law what to do about it. So he eventually was relieved of his position, solving the predicament that was created by his disappearance from the country. Now, as I understand, he then appealed to Russia and said that there had been a coup. Do you think that influenced Russia at all? I think what was important from Russian standpoint was once Yanukovych was not able to deliver what Russia wanted, this is when they decided that they sought to lose Ukraine. That again, their plan, which has been the plan all along, to keep Ukraine in Russia's sphere of influence, to control foreign policies and domestic politics. And that's when we have annexation of Crimea and the attempt to control central government through this Donbass region. When they began to facilitate Donetsk and Luhansk, these two separatist Donbass regions, can you describe a little bit how did this really come about in those regions? What did people do? There were all sorts of varieties of groups, all sorts of fringe groups with fringe activists. Were they Ukrainians or Russians? The head of some fringe party technically was Ukrainian citizen, but they did receive Russian support and Russian money. So these fringe pro-Russian groups was one group. And political power there was consolidated under Yanukovych and the oligarchs supporting Yanukovych regime and his networks controlled that region totally. And then at the collapse of the Yanukovych regime in Kyiv, the oligarchs supporting him feared losing influence in the capital since their representative was ousted. And the oligarchs saw value at the time in having organized protests. And we have evidence of people being bused from the factories to these protests. What were these people protesting against? Broadly speaking, the new government. And what exactly protesters wanted was kind of varied. The term federalization was used. What exactly federalization means was never quite defined. You know, when we see images of the Donbass region, we see smaller villages and people living simply in these villages. Was the dissatisfaction connected to poverty? Poverty was part of it, but actually the protests were concentrated not in the village, but in the industrial center in Uh the capital city of Donetsk, Luhansk, and that eastern part. Donbass is more industrialized. This is where we have the industry, often quite antiquated from the Soviet period, the mining, the metallurgy, and all of this. And again, a lot of this industry was oriented towards Russia. Not all of it. I mean, there was also substantial trading with the West. 
But again, this narrative that was fanned by the pro-Russian actors in Russia, that the new government in Kyiv may cut economic ties with Russia, right? And we will lose our job. So the grievances were really varied. So for some people, this kind of economic fears would drove them to take part in the protests or to oppose the new government. You know, for other people, there were maybe concerns that the government would be very nationalistic and cultural rights will not be respected. Mm-hmm. Right. So that was the Russian propaganda that the quote-unquote Nazi junta took power in Kyiv and they're going to engage in quote-unquote genocide. And then once Crimea annexation happens, there were outright Russian operatives from Crimea who orchestrated seizure of the government buildings, of police headquarters, weaponry, and so forth. Eventually, these pro-Russian forces and pro-Russian operatives began to run the show. So it was kind of a complex picture and complex sets of attitudes and actors in the spring of 2014 in this part of the country. Polls show that about a quarter of the population was support for joining Russia. So I think we shouldn't discount the fact that there was a lot of popular dissatisfaction, but the escalation of these sets of attitudes into seizure of government buildings and formation of these self-declared republics would not have happened had it not been for the involvement of Russia. The decisive factor and the fact that it turned out violent was the involvement of Russia and Russian operatives that was not there in previous similar sets of circumstances. So it wasn't a genuine internal civil war going on? It was not domestically driven. We have now ample evidence from leaked telephone conversations of Russian operatives having a plan. There was the whole playbook organizing protests and activities and to have local councils vote to basically give a vote of no confidence in the central government. That was something that was developed consciously in Moscow with financing all of these various French pro-Russian groups that then kind of it all came together that spring. And given that there was a power vacuum until the new government could get its bearing, I mean, that was really kind of golden opportunity to activate these plans. Mm-hmm. So then you had these two separatist regions, Donetsk and the Luhansk regions. What was exactly their status? It was not like Crimea, where it had been annexed by Russia. They were still part of Ukraine, but they were independent within Ukraine. They declared the formation of these self-proclaimed Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. But the territory where the separatists and the Russian backers controlled where they were able to hold these referendums did not extend to all of these regions. Donetsk and Luhansk are bigger regions than the territories where these republics were proclaimed. And then it's this kind of limbo crisis they emerged because here are these territories that declare themselves to be these republics. Uh, Ukrainian government and nobody else in the world recognized them as such. And then there was a period of military action for control of territory between the Ukrainian government and the separatists backed by Russian forces in the summer of 2014. So conflict between the Ukrainian military and people in these separatist regions. Who were the soldiers who were fighting for the separate regions? Some local people from these territories did join in these armed groups fighting the Ukrainian government. There were also Russian officers, commanders in the units. And in the summer of 2014, when it looks like Ukrainian military was making progress and was recapturing territory, Russia openly put its regular military force to back the separatist forces, which were already kind of like a mix, we can say, of local and Russian And that changed the course of the war. 
At that point, Ukraine was facing much stronger Russian military, and the president at the time was forced to sign the so-called Minsk peace agreements, that essentially Ukraine said they're going to negotiate with these separatist Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, and these Minsk peace agreements provided basically terms of settlement. These regions were supposed to be reintegrated into Ukraine, but with much broader sets of rights, and this so-called special status, which was never clearly defined. And I think this is basically the main reason why these agreements ended up not being implemented, because Ukraine was willing to give these regions quite a lot of autonomy. They actually even passed a lot to this effect with various linguistic rights, economic rights, part of decentralization campaign that Ukraine was doing, transferring more powers to the region. But Russia insisted that these regions should have so-called special status, which was not defined in the Minsk agreements themselves. And Ukraine interpreted it as basically these regions having certain rights, like linguistic, economic, cultural, and so forth. But Russia wanted them to have a veto power over decisions of the central government. So essentially, Russia lost not able to influence politics in Kyiv, but to prevent Ukrainian movement towards the West, towards the EU, giving veto power to these separatist regions would have accomplished this goal, because then whatever Ukrainian government wanted to do, even if it had majority population support, these de facto statelets could have veto power over decisions of the central government. That was the whole point of these Minsk agreements from Russian standpoint, because very few people would say that Russia really cares about these regions. I mean, these are depressed industrial regions. They don't even have some sort of like historical mythology for Russia like Crimea does. The idea that there was some sort of genocide of Russian speakers there is completely ludicrous. But they could have been a very useful instrument for Russia, for Putin, to continue to have influence over Ukraine, in particular preventing any kind of westward movement by the now pro-Western government through the special status, quote-unquote, of these Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics that could have vetoed foreign policy decisions of the central government. And of course, that was not acceptable for Ukraine. And that became the bone of contention. And Russia claims that Ukrainians failed to implement Minsk. And this is why they had to invade, because the Minsk agreement was sabotaged by Ukraine. But Ukrainians point out how Russia refused to implement other provisions of the Minsk agreement, such as ceasefire, withdrawal of troops, allowing for elections under Ukrainian legislation. And they never allowed to have any kind of peacekeepers or international monitoring of the elections, let alone control of the border. But they insisted on the region having this quote-unquote special status in the constitution of Ukraine, which would have been a Trojan horse um, in Ukrainian politics. And Ukrainians refused to interpret special status this way. So that became kind of unsolvable conundrum. And when Putin realized that Zelensky is not going to deliver on this kind of provisions of the special status that he hoped to achieve, I think that's when full-scale invasion becomes inevitable, because the overall goal was to control Ukraine and to prevent its independence and any kind of integration into the West. You are listening to Ukraine 242. I'm your host for this week, Ursula Rudenberg at Pacifica Radio. We're hearing from Oksana Cheval, Associate Professor of Political Science at Tufts University and at the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University. She has been describing the history of the Donbass region in Ukraine, specifically how Russia undertook organizing in the region to serve as a lever for asserting control over the Ukrainian government. The 
usefulness of these areas for Putin was they could have leverage over the central government in Kiev, which Putin needed. Mm-hmm. So the whole sort of autonomy for Donbass or protection of Russian speakers or all of this that we hear from Kremlin, I don't think that was ever the main concern for Russia. The main design was to use these areas to influence and control central government in Kiev by the special status of these separatist regions that could essentially block pro-Western foreign policy decisions. Not about making these areas autonomous areas. I mean, I really think Putin didn't care one way or the other what exactly happened in these areas themselves. I mean, they didn't really protect or care for the well-being of these people in these areas. And so the invasion was an attempt to prevent Ukraine from turning to the West, keeping it part of Russia. I think so. I think we should take Putin's words seriously. I mean, he clearly has his understanding of Russian politics. And on that view, Ukraine is not a separate state. He believes there was some sort of natural order of things. And he's kind of crazy because all nations are ultimately constructed. And yes, in that sense, Ukrainian nation was constructed, but so was Russian nation and German nation and any other nation. But that's not how Putin sees it. I mean, he believes that Ukraine is part of Russia and Ukraine being part of Russia also is absolutely necessary for Russia to have this status of great power, to have its influence in Europe and in the world globally. So subjugation of Ukraine was completely critical for the achievement of this great power status. So again, there were different ways in which over the years it could be achieved if there was a pro-Russian president in Kyiv. After he was ousted, that failed. Then they tried to do it through these Minsk peace agreements and having Donbass to control the central government. Once that fails, it sort of seems they were out of options. And that's when this crazy decision was made to invade, which, of course, was also based on a lot of misperceptions about Ukraine, because this whole idea that Ukrainians are really pro-Russians, which Putin really seems to have believed, he believed, you mm-hmm. know, that people would welcome Russian troops, right? Like once they are liberated from their fascist government in Kyiv. And he completely disregarded evidence from Ukraine's opinion polls that showed that especially after 2014, there has been a sea change in opinions in Ukraine, including in this historically more Russia-friendly south and east of the country. People began to think of themselves more as Ukrainian. They begin to favor integration with the West. NATO became more popular, which was not popular at all before. In the South and the East, after Russian annexation of Crimea, after Russia fueled separatism in Donbass, the majority of the population supported NATO membership. That was completely unprecedented. So in a way, ironic as it is, something that you know Ukrainian nationalists failed to achieve, Putin achieved. He completely disregarded this changes in opinion in Ukraine. When he was explicitly asked about it at one of his press conferences, he said something along the lines that the polls are fake because people are afraid to show their true pro-Russian preferences. And as soon as Russian tanks were on the streets, the expectation was that all these grateful Ukrainians would come and welcome them. And that didn't happen. And everybody who studied Ukraine knew that. And that's why this invasion seemed so idiotic. There was just no way you can subjugate a country of 40 million people unless you essentially have occupation regime. But that's not how Putin reasoned, and this is why I think it goes to show both Putin's determination to control Ukraine, which is based on his understanding of what is a true Russian nation and what makes Russia a great power that it has to have control of Ukraine. I mean, without Ukraine, Russia cannot be an empire, it cannot be this civilization, as they call it, and I think that's why we are where we are. If Ukraine will regain all of those territories, separatist initiatives, kind of a moot point? 
Well, I think that the integration of these regions would be very complicated for many different reasons. First of all, the region is completely devastated. Putin is destroying the homes, so just the very reconstruction there would be a monumental task. And then not only many people were killed, many people left. Some of the more pro-Ukrainian left already back in 2014. So who gets to decide, for example, the future of these regions? You know, what about people who left? Some of them may come back, some of them may not come back. There are people from Russia who were moved to these regions, sometimes voluntarily, sometimes incentivized. What happens to them? I think Ukrainians would feel that basically that they should be expelled. That's probably going to be also not very easy to end. I mean, the question of collaboration is going to be important because after all these years, there were obviously many local people who in various ways participated in government structures and local police. What happens to them? Like, sort of what is collaboration exactly? How do you deal with collaborators? And all of these questions from economic integration to collaboration to deciding how to deal with, say, people who left these regions or people who came to these regions after the annexation be definitely to consider. You're an expert on immigration. What do you think is going to be important for the Ukrainian government to address when they try to do this? I think it's really difficult. It's a very large territory. I think there is a distinction between the territories that were occupied just after February and the territories that were under occupation since 2014. It would be harder to deal, I think, with the situation on the territories that were in the separatist quasi-state formations since 2014. I mean, there are all of these institutions of collaboration have been more entrenched. Probably by this point, many of the people who left from there made a life somewhere else, so they may maybe not want to go back, or their property was stolen or destroyed. So I can't say there is any easy solution. I think the maybe starting point would be to kind of like map out what exactly the challenges are. I don't think anybody could give easy to-do list. The price that Ukraine is paying for their self-determination is very high. Yes, but I mean, I think it should be important for your listeners to understand that the way Ukrainians look at it, it is really a matter of survival. So these sorts of things, like, well, let's give Putin maybe some territory and settle like this. It has no support in Ukraine. More than 80% believe that Ukraine should fight to liberate all of its territories, including Donbass and Crimea, because rewarding aggression, like essentially imperialist war, with some territory only invites further aggression. And if they were to be given some territory, it only gives a chance to rearm, to regroup, not to mention all these horrific human rights abuses that are happening on all the occupied territories. So for the Ukrainians to give essentially some people as victims in perpetuity, and then to hope that somehow Putin will be satisfied, that's not an option. And this is why, even though, as you say, in sacrifice, there is really very strong, very broadly shared sentiment that this is the only way to peace. So once the territory is liberated, there could be negotiations about the extent of reparations and maybe what kind of policies would be pursued. Like, would Crimea have different language policy before the annexation? Crimea actually already had three official languages there, the Ukrainian, Russian and Crimean Tatar. So these sorts of things, you know, could be negotiated again, not really with Russia, but potentially within Ukraine. But this notion that some sort of territorial concession should be made to Putin to end this war and then peace will follow, that's something that unfortunately still seems to be prevalent in, the, in some circles in the West, but it is completely rejected in Ukraine. All of these calls to compromise should be directed at Putin. He never indicated that they're willing to scale down their objectives. You know, the denazification of Ukraine, what does it mean? Did he ever say that he no longer wants to pursue liberating Donbass? What does it really mean? I mean, they keep fighting and throwing essentially a lot of these conscripts to try to regain some 
now destroy towns in Donbass. Like, what is the point of this? Like, Putin never gave any indication that he would say withdraw from the territory they captured since February if he gets to keep Crimea. This is one of these so-called peace proposals that let's maybe give him Crimea and he withdraws from elsewhere. But he has never given any indication that he would withdraw from anywhere voluntarily. And I think for him it would be very difficult to sell this as victory because they start this supposedly, you know, to denazify quote-unquote Ukraine and quote-unquote liberate people of Donbass. So if they were left with a settlement where essentially they, they are where they started in February, I think that would be big danger for Putin's rule because what has he accomplished? He had all these tens of thousands of people killed, destroyed, you know, huge swaths of Ukraine to only be left with where they started. So I think these proposals are unrealistic. You were saying that some of the areas that have been occupied the longest are going to be the most difficult after the war. What city would you say will probably be the most difficult? I don't know if I would put it sort of in the city. I would say, like, generally speaking, a territory that these self-proclaimed republics controlled since 2014. Eastern Donbass, right? Because Eastern Donbass was the parts that were controlled by the separatists since 2014. We are now talking Mm -hmm. about seven years of certain educational policies, certain personnel policy. I mean, anybody who was pro-Ukrainian was either killed or was forced to live there, right? Only some people resettled from Russia. I think the question who are the actually relevant people to decide this question becomes increasingly complicated after eight years of displacement and, you know, population movements and, you know, essentially killing off of any kind of pro-Ukrainian, any, anybody who expresses pro-Ukrainian views. So that's why I was saying that the difference between the territories that were only occupied by Russia in February, reintegrating these territories like that would be liberated um, would be, I mean, again, relatively speaking, I think easier than the territories that were controlled by these separatist statelets since 2014. Do you think that this evolution in Ukrainian culture, would you say this was more a turning towards self-identity or a turning towards the West? I think both, which is really quite ironic, because if, let's say, in 2014, after Yanukovych fled, let's say, imagine Putin didn't annex Crimea and didn't try to foment insurgency. These regional differences in Ukraine didn't go anywhere. And, you know, in Ukraine, we had regular changes in the political leadership. So somebody, you know, would get elected, the president would fail to deliver on anti-corruption promises and so forth, and they would get voted out and a new leader would come in. And there has been this alternation between pro-Western and pro-Russian presidents. So I think it's more likely than not that, you know, after pro-Western president was elected in 2014, somebody more Russia-friendly would have been elected. Again, Russia could have continued to exercise substantial influence in Ukraine. It would have still had this broad number of the population friendly to Russia. But that's not what happened. After the annexation of Crimea and then the separatism in Donbass, the opinions really changed. So your question, like, yes, they became more pro-Western, but also more kind of pro-Ukrainian. People discover their kind of civic sense of Ukrainian identity, that you can be a Russian speaker but still support Ukraine because nobody liked this aggressive action that Russia took against Ukraine. We see the revival of certain historical figures. We had this process of when all these monuments were destroyed in Ukraine, turning away from the Soviet slash Russian legacy. There is now a second wave of this movement where not just communist place names and monuments, but those associated with Russian empire and Russian culture are being removed from Ukraine. So Ukraine is becoming increasingly pro-Ukrainian, both politically and culturally, and also pro-Western. And in a very ironic twist of events, I think Putin can take a lot of credit for this. 
I mean, the Ukrainian nationalists would be probably turning in their graves because Putin accomplished something that they could not have accomplished as far as changing opinions in the east and south of the country. So I think this irony really shouldn't be lost. I think it's one of the most fascinating outcomes, mm-hmm. this identity changes um, of this war. And again, Putin can take credit for it, whether he likes to or not. Any last words? As much as everybody wants peace and nobody likes war, and this idea that Putin somehow can be given some sort of off-ramp in some part of Ukrainian territory and that would be a way to settle this conflict, I think it's very dangerous and very wrong. And again, very important to uh, to emphasize that Ukrainians themselves completely reject that kind of settlement. So I think anybody who supports Ukraine should listen to Ukrainian voices and why and how they see that as an unacceptable placating aggressor and rewarding nuclear blackmail is not really a way to achieve lasting peace. Okay, well, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Our thanks to our guest, Oksana Shevel, Associate Professor of Political Science at Tufts University and at the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University. Her area of expertise is domestic politics, specializing in the post-Soviet region. Recently, she's been working on the politics of religion and identity in Ukraine. She has published a book called Migration, Refugee Policy, and State Building in Post-Communist Europe. She is currently working on a book about the war in Ukraine. I've been your host for today, Ursula Rudenberg, at Pacifica Network, with editing assistance from Stephanie Schubert, also at Pacifica Network. Music was Lenita by Danit Troibek. To visit our complete library of shows, go to ukraine242.com. Until next week, on your Pacifica affiliate member station, thank you for listening.